I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my need and once you sent you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Joel. <clears throat> Throughout this fall, we have been looking through the book of Philippians, which is actually just this little letter that Paul wrote to this church in a city called Philippi. And the theme of this book, as we have seen it, is uh, the theme of joy. It's the kind of the Bible's treatise on joy. But uh, Christian joy, as we've seen, is not uh, what you think it is. It's totally counterintuitive. It's totally uh, countercultural. Because we think that joy comes through gaining, that I'll get my hands on some joy if I can get more vacation or more money or more me time or more likes and follows and retweets, more power, more whatever. But we've seen that joy does not come uh, by gaining, but by losing. By losing the very things that you think that you need in order to have joy. And um, as we get to the end of this book, nothing is more countercultural and nothing is more counterintuitive than what Paul's going to get into. Because what Paul's about to get into is generosity. The joy of losing your money. The joy of losing your resources. Now, I was trying to think about this. <clears throat> I don't know since I've been at Redeemer that I've ever preached a sermon on generosity or money. And we're about to. And I know that the moment anytime a, a preacher gets up in a church and starts talking about money and giving and generosity, everybody starts to feel a little on edge. A little, it feels a little icky. It feels a little self-serving. And you, you're just kind of like a bracing for... There's a high-pressure guilt trip coming, and then they're going to pass around the plates because Pastor Matt wants a jet ski, and you just kind of feel like this is what's, what's about to happen. It's not what's about to happen. But, you know, you think about money and the importance that money plays, how we spend our money, how we relate to our money impacts almost every area of our lives. And so when Jesus invites us into the good life, life to the full, as he talks about it, that involves how we think about our money. We can't avoid 
thinking about, talking about what is this, what does the gospel mean for how I think about money? So how do we think about money? Well, I want you to think about money from this passage really in two different ways. I want to show you from this section that joy, that um, money is a gift and money is a sign. Money is a gift and money is a sign. What does that mean? Let's talk about the gift first. How is money a gift? Well, this uh, final section in the book of Philippians, Paul kind of gets to the main point for why he's writing this letter in the first place. As you might know or you might be familiar with, Paul's been in prison in Rome, and there's this church hundreds of miles away in Philippi that have raised all this money to send him, and they send him all this all these gifts through one of their members, Epaphroditus. So they send him this money, all these resources, and Paul is thanking them. That's what the letter basically is. Philippians is basically just a long thank you note, four chapter long thank you note. And so he gets to it uh, here at the end. Look at verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He says, I'm overflowing with joy. I'm rejoicing greatly because you've revived your concern for me. You've taken care of me. You've been generous towards me. This is what's in his head. In fact, it's a little bit more clear in verse 18. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So he's rejoicing over this money in verse 10, but he knows pretty quickly, oh, this can be very, very easily misconstrued. It can sound like he's saying, what I'm most excited about in this life is the money that you just sent. And so for them to hear that and say, oh, Paula, you seem to talk about Jesus, the kingdom, a lot, but, but okay, when push comes to shove, what you're really about, you're all about the Benjamins. You're all about the green, the scratch, the bread, the scrilla, the whatever, and um, the cheddar. And so to... Um, kind of cut off any misunderstandings, look at this kind of disclaimer he gives in verse 11. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In other words, he's saying, when I'm rejoicing over this gift that you've sent, it's not coming from this needy, desperate place that needs money in order to fill it. In other words, there's not this vacuum of discontentment inside of me that suddenly goes away whenever I get my hands on some money. In fact, he makes it pretty clear in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift. In other words, I'm not in this for the paycheck. I'm not seeking the gift. But here's what he's saying. If you step back, he's saying, my joy is not dependent on money. The, the thing that makes me content in life is not the resources that I have available to me. Money is just money. It's helpful, it's useful, but it's a gift. It's not my God, which I think is such a fascinating and convicting way to relate to money because if you're anything like me, I, that's not how we tend to think about money. Money for us in many ways is not, we don't see it just as a gift, something that we can use and steward and give or whatever. We, we, it is our God. And by that, what I mean is that it's hard for us to envision a life of happiness apart from having a lot of money being a part of that story. There's this um, famous psychologist, Robert Waldinger, who is now the recent 
uh, curator of this research uh, project. It's the, it's, the, it's the longest research project that's ever been done on American soil. It's the, it's the um, Harvard study of human happiness. It's a study that's been going on for over 75 years long, and he's now the guy that's kind of overseeing it. But this, the whole point of this study is to ask this question, what do human beings need in order to live a full life? What is it that humans need in order to be in order to live a happy and a healthy life? And so he, there's this TED talk that he gives where he he kind of relays a lot of the results of this uh, uh, research project, which is super fascinating. I totally encourage you to um, watch it. But in that TED talk, he cites this survey that was done as a part of their research. They surveyed all these millennials, and they asked these millennials this question: What are your most important goals in life? Like, as you think about the life you want to live, what is it that you want? What is it that you think is going to give you the good life? Interview all these millennials. You know what 80% of them said? 80% of the people in this interview said their main goal in life was to get rich. Now, you can hear that and think, yeah, millennials, idiots, or, you know, whatever. It's not just millennials. It's all of us. I think all of us deep down really do believe and think the good life is one in which I have tons of money at, at my, you know, fingertips. In fact, money becomes the, um, the driving factor that dictates most of our decisions. You ever thought about this? When you think about, okay, why should I move to that city? Why should I move to this city? We think, well, you know, if I, if I move here, it's going to be a better career move for me. Translation, I'll get more money. Why should I take this job instead of that job? Well, I'll take this job because it pays more. Better paycheck. Uh, I'll live in that neighborhood because it's cheaper. I get more square footage for my, you know, more bang for my buck, whatever. And so money becomes the, the singular dominating factor in how we make our decisions. Should it be a factor in how we make decisions? Yes, absolutely. I'm just making the point that the impact on the bottom line seems to override other things that we might want to think about as well, such as, do I want to do this? Is this would this move be good for my family? Would this, be, would this move be good for my city? Would this decision be good for my own soul? I, um, I came across this crazy story this week, and I, I've, I've fact-checked it on multiple sites, and it seems to be true. Um, but in September of 1857... There was this boat that was traveling from Panama up to the United States, and it was carrying all this gold, all this gold that they said had, had, most of it had kind of gotten acquired through the California gold rush. And as it's going up to the, uh, along the coast of the U.S., when it gets outside of the Carolinas, it, it intercepts with a hurricane, and the boat uh, sinks, it goes down, over 400 passengers on board lost their lives. And one of the stories of this boat, which is called the SS Central America, is the name of the boat, uh, there's a wealthy businessman on board who is transporting 200 pounds of gold uh, from Panama to the United States. And as the boat is going down, starts strapping hunks of gold to himself before he jumps into the water to save the gold. I don't want to lose all of his money. And, of course, the gold sinks him to the bottom of the ocean, and he loses his life. It's this, it's this vivid, horrible story 
of somebody who's not relating to money like it's a gift, but relating to money like it's their God, and they're clutching onto it and, and dying out of devotion for their God. Now, just to be clear, the Bible say, does not say that money is evil. It does not say that gold is evil. The Bible never says that, um, uh, that the, the, uh, being wealthy is sinful or even wanting to enjoy material possessions is a bad thing. It does say uh, that money's deceitful. It, it's seductive, and therefore it's dangerous. In fact, let me read you this. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. Paul writes this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The desire to be rich is a snare. It's seductive. There's a lot of dangers involved. In fact, the Bible also says uh, that money won't make you happy. Now, none of us really believe that, but the Bible says that. Here's uh, Ecclesiastes 5.10. It says, he who loves money is never satisfied by money. Kind of reminds me of this story. I've heard it. I don't know if it's true. It's the story, uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller, you know, the gazillionaire, was once asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? You've made your bazillions and you're still hustling. Like, how much money is enough? And so the story goes, uh, he said, quote, a little bit more. Now, that's a very different relationship to money that you see Paul having here. Paul has a very different, money to him is not a god, it's a gift. In fact, look at what he says in verse 11. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This is a learned disposition. He didn't show up like this. And then he says a similar thing in verse 12. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. And then he follows that up with the famous verse that everybody rips out of context. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is saying, I have learned to depend on Jesus for my strength. I have learned to depend on Jesus for my very life. He's the one that is caring for me. He's the one that takes care of me. He sustains me. He provides for me. Not money. Now, he doesn't tell you how he came to learn that, but if you read between the lines, I think it's fairly obvious. The way that you learn to trust in Jesus and not money is when you release your hands from the money. When you have your white-knuckled grip on the money, it is your God. You're clinging onto it for dear life. But when it gets taken from you, when you lose it, either by accident or when you willingly release it, that also does something inside of you, that you're training your own heart to say, I, I don't need this in the same way that I thought I did. But that only happens when Jesus gets elevated, centralized, and money gets demoted. It just becomes money. You see it just as a gift. You can... Enjoy it, steward it, give it, but it's not your God. It's a gift. So that's the first thing. The money is a gift, but there's more. It's, it's also a sign. What does that mean? Well, it's fascinating to hear Paul kind of um, work his way through this passage because he just said to these people, Hey, by the way, I'm not in this desperate, needy place. I've actually learned to be content no matter what situation I'm in. 
And it can sound a little bit like he's not really appreciative of the gift that they just sent him. Because, you know, it's, it's kind of like he's saying, hey, Philippians, thank you for this gift, but I don't need it. And you could hear them respond and say, well, why did we send it then? It's, it kind of, this was like a big deal to us. We like sacrificed and raised a bunch of money for you, and now you're saying you didn't really need it. After all, it kind of makes us feel kind of stupid. Like, why did we do this? And so Paul gives another disclaimer to kind of get rid of any of these misunderstandings. He says in verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. He's saying, no, 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 don't misunderstand me. This was a good thing for you to do this. This was kind of you to share in, the, in this uh, trouble of mine. And then in verse 15 and 16, he acknowledges, look, y'all have given me a lot of financial support over the years. I'm extremely thankful for that. But here's the point he's making. What he's most excited about is not the gift. It's not the money. It's the fact that they're becoming generous. That's what he's most excited about. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He's using this imagery of fruit. Now, you think about, um, think about an apple tree. It's got all these big apples all over its branches. The, f- the apples are not making the tree alive. They're simply proving that the tree is alive. You can look at that as a sign, as an indicator that the tree is healthy. It's, it's vibrant. It's, it's doing well. And Paul's saying, look, I'm grateful for your gift. This was so kind. Thank you for it. But what I'm really most excited about, the thing I'm really seeking after is not your money, but it's seeing you become somebody that's producing this fruit of generosity. I'm more interested in seeing you be the kind of people that are radically generous. And look, it's happening. I can see it. That's what I'm most excited about. And so it's fascinating because the way that he sees generosity is that it's, it's a sign. It's a tangible way that you can tell something has happened on their insides. Money is a sign in the sense that how you relate to your money is an indicator of whether or not your faith is real, whether or not it's actually kind of trickled down into the deepest part of you. When that happens, that changes your relationship with money in a pretty drastic way. There's this um, show that I'm sure you've heard of or are familiar with. Our kids got into it, I don't know, a few months ago, called Is It Cake? Maybe you've seen this. It's on, uh, it's on the Netflix. I think season two's dropping soon, so I've heard. I don't know. But um, it's this kind of Netflix game show. It's super fun. It's, it's, they set up on a stage all these different kind of stations where they put different items. Like there's six little stands with l- pieces of luggage on them. But one of the pieces of luggage is a cake. It's a baked cake that is designed and looks identical to real, like, luggage. Don't picture cake wrecks. Like, this, it, it, it's astounding how real it looks. And so the judges are over there, and they're trying to guess and figure out maybe one is the cake, maybe luggage piece number three is the cake. I don't know. And so the whole, they don't know. You don't know which is the cake until the host comes around with a giant knife and says, is it cake? And looks at this big suitcase or whatever, and then cuts into it, and it folds over, and there's all this icing and green cake on the inside, and your brain can't even understand what just happened. And um, that's how you can know what's on the inside of that thing. You can't do that with people, though. 
I can't, I can't stand up here and say, well, I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. You can't cut into my soul and look and see faith in there. But what you can do is you could look at my bank account. I'm not going to let you, but you could, theoretically. You could look at my credit card statement. The, the point is, how you relate to your money is an indicator of how you relate to Jesus. You and I can say all day long, we love Jesus, Jesus is great, the kingdom, yay. But until that impacts your spending habits, until that impacts how you tip, until that impacts how you give, how you think about those in need, then there may be a possibility that your faith isn't real. This is why, if you keep going, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me. Paul talks about generosity as an act of worship. Do you notice this? It's, it's, it's wild. Look at verse 18. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, he's alluding to this practice that was done in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures where people would come to church, they go to the temple, and they go to the altar, and they'd put some produce or a an animal on the altar, and it would be sacrificed, and then it would be consumed by the fire, and all the smoke would go up, and it was this act of worship. It was a way for somebody to say, okay, I'm going to part ways with this really valuable thing to me, but I'm going to do it to tell God and to show God, you're more valuable to me than this. You're my treasure, not this. So I'm going to sacrifice this to you, and the smoke goes up, and it's this fragrant offering it to God. And Paul says, when you're generous to other people, that same dynamic is happening. You're worshiping. It's like you're taking your check, your donation, your whatever, Venmo, and you're putting it on the altar, and you're, it's getting sacrificed. It's, it's, you're parting ways with it, and it's getting consumed, and it's getting burned up, and, and that gift to somebody else, as the smoke goes up, he says, it's, it's a fragrant offering. God smells it and says, that smells amazing. That is good. That is right. That is awesome. Generosity is directly connected to our faith. Now, let's hit pause for just a second. We'll check in with each other. Because you could be hearing all this, and you could be feeling some sense of guilt. Ugh. I know I should be giving more. We need to be giving more. You could feel some degree of fear where you're like, well, this is what real Christians are supposed to do because we better pull out the checkbook if I want to be a real Christian. And I want you to know that guilt, fear are, are never driving motivators in the Christian life. In fact, I want to show you there's this amazing passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's writing to this other church in a different city, and he's actually asking them for money. He's not just thanking them for money. He's saying, hey, y'all need to chip in here. But listen to how he does it. It's fascinating. He does it, in verse 8, he says, I say this, meaning I'm telling you to put some money in the plate. I say this not as a command, meaning I'm not telling you this, even though I could, as if it's a command and I'm pressing on your willpower and I'm pressing on your guilt and I'm pressing on your fear and you better do this because it's your duty. He says, I'm not going to do that. So what does he do? He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Here's what Paul just did. He said, look, I want you all to be generous, but I only want you to be generous from a heart that has been electroshocked by grace. And so he reminds them of the story of the gospel. He says, Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that through his poverty, you might experience the real riches, the real treasures of this life. He says, just think about Jesus, infinitely rich. He has everything. He owns everything. Everything on the earth is his. Everything in the universe is his. He has all the power, all the glory, all the possessions. It's all his. He makes Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk look like chumps. I mean, they got nothing compared. He's got everything. And yet, what does he do? He gives it all up. He's born in a barn. And he lives this life of, of poverty. In fact, we, we know at one point in his life, that he, in his adult life, that he experienced homelessness. Somebody comes up to him and they say, Jesus, I want to follow you wherever you go. I'm in. Wherever you go, me, I'm with you. Ride or die, Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air, they got nests. Me, the son of man, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. I don't know where I'm sleeping tonight. You sure you want to follow me? You know, there's one point um, people come up to Jesus, and they start asking him about taxes. They want to know his take on, uh, on taxes. And he says, okay, somebody give me a, a nickel. I want to see whose image is on it. He's asking people for, like, this little coin. Because he doesn't have one. He's got no money in his own pocket. He's got to ask somebody for a nickel just to have the conversation. We know that his whole ministry was basically funded by the generosity of this group of women that were his disciples. He uh, preached from borrowed boats. He ate borrowed food. He rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He, after he was crucified, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Why would someone who possessed everything plunge himself into abject poverty? Why would someone who is rich become poor? Why would he give it all up? There's only one reason that can explain it. Because there is something else out there that he doesn't have that is actually means more to him than all of that stuff combined. Something out there is more of a treasure to him. It's more valuable to his heart than all the possessions, all the cattle on a thousand hills. And you know what it is? It's you. And it's me that he's willing to give it all up, sacrifice it, it all, that he would become poor so that through his poverty, we might experience the real riches, that the door might actually be opened up for us, for us to actually enjoy him. So Paul's saying, look, I, I, I don't want you to give out of compulsion. I want you to give from a heart that has been saturated in grace. I want you to think about grace. I want you to think about his love for you. I want you to think about his sacrifice for you until it starts to transform you from the inside out. And the thing that starts, the fruit that starts popping up in your life is real sacrificial generosity, but not from guilt, not from fear, not from pride, but from worship, from joy. This is why in verse 23, he ends the whole letter with a benediction that the grace of Jesus would be with their spirits. 
because his grace, soaking in his grace is what fuels the whole Christian life, including how we relate to money. One final thought and then I'm, I'm done. Uh, when I was looking at this, I thought this was uh, super fascinating that this phrase that you see in verse 18, fragrant offering, it's only used two times in the entire New Testament. One of them is obviously right here. When it talks about our generosity, it's this fragrant offering, this sacrifice to God. The only other place in the New Testament that uses that language is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. And Paul says this, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus is the ultimate offering. Jesus is the one who gave up everything, including his very life, and put it on the altar of the cross out of devotion to God and out of love and commitment to you. When that gets into your bloodstream, when that moves your heart, to that degree, you will become somebody who's generous. That's the book of Philippians. If you want to summarize the book of Philippians into one sentence, you could say that the way to joy is the way of the cross. Or to quote somebody uh, a lot wiser than myself, you will find your life when you lose your life for Jesus' sake. And so my prayer for you and for me is that we would be people who increasingly experience the joy of losing all things so that we may gain Christ and be found in him. Well, let me pray. Father, this is uh, it's so upside down. It's so counterintuitive. I-, I pray that you would do a work inside of our hearts that we might see the beauty and the generosity and the, the provision of Jesus in such a way that our insides might be moved by your grace, that our heartbeat would be driven by gratitude, driven by thankfulness, driven by worship and joy, not on accumulation, not on gain. Father, help us release our clutches from these lesser gods that we might receive and rest and cling to Jesus who upholds, him, who upholds us with his right hand. And we pray all this in his name.